So would you rather have a vengeful God or a loving God? Now let's think for a second. You are in a courtroom and you are in trial. Would you rather have a vengeful judge or a loving judge? Now let's reverse it. Let's pretend someone broke into your house, kidnapped your entire family, held them hostage for not just weeks, but several months. And during this time, they tortured them. They were caught. And now they stand in front of that same judge. Would you rather have a loving judge or a vengeful judge? The problem with this question that we often pose is we see it as an either-or. And I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a both and. And that's what we're going to get into today. So let's turn to Psalm 94. We've been walking through Psalm. We've been walking through the fourth book of Psalms. And uh, we went through 92 yesterday. We're going to skip 93 because it's a little short. So we're saving that for our communion Sunday next week. Uh, because we need it to be a little bit short for that time. And 94 is really long, so I didn't want to go through a long one on our communion Sunday. So we're skipping 93. We'll be back into 93 next week. We're in Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. We've, in our culture, got this picture of a lovey-dovey, care-bear God. A God that has no strength. I think Psalm 94 gives us a different picture. One that we need to take 
seriously. So let's dig in. O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. So this term shine forth means to show up. Come bring your glory, God. Show the world. Reveal to the world who you are. This term vengeance uh, is is justice driven. And so oftentimes when we hear vengeance, we think of revenge. But the problem is revenge is, a, is an emotion driven act of repaying injustice. Revenge is emotion driven act of repaying injustice. So there's still injustice. I think of revenge when I look at my kids and one has given one an act of injustice, you know, and it might be a small act of injustice like stealing a piece of candy or, you know, each one of them have their own dressers and on top of their dressers they've decorated them very nicely and one of them might go and wreck the other one's dresser. Well, the one now has an emotional act to this injustice. They see the injustice of their tra- of their dresser getting wrecked and what are they going to do? They're going to lash out in emotion. And because they're lashing out in emotion, they don't actually inflict justice. What they inflict is revenge. Have you ever been wrong in such a way that you have this emotional reaction and you're just so mad, you're shaking your fist, you're like, if only I had the ability right now, I would crush them like a little worm. That's emotional. It's not true justice. The problem with human justice is oftentimes it's an emotional justice and it's not real justice. We see this all the time. There are political parties in this country that that know there is an emotional reaction to wrongs. And there are wrongs that have been committed. But they look at the emotional reaction and they say, we can play into that. We can play on that emotional reaction and they stir up the emotion and it's not justice, it's revenge. So this term that, that the psalmist is writing about is vengeance and it's justice driven. It's a justice driven act of repaying injustice. And so he's saying, God, the God of justice, who is a just judge, Look down, shine forth, reveal your glory because there's injustice throughout this world. And what I long for isn't revenge. It's not to repay injustice with more injustice. What I long for is true justice. That's what this psalmist is saying. God, bring the real justice. Bring forth, shine forth your real justice. Rise up. So he's repeating this idea of of shine forth. Bring it, Lord. Show your glory, O judge of the earth. And so he gives us this. He's comparing God to the judge of the earth. So he's bringing us into a courtroom. And in this courtroom, he's going to show us how the wicked behave and what they say. And then he's going to give a little bit of a, a, a lesson to the wicked. And then he's going to end this psalm with two different rhetorical questions. So he's saying, rise up, O judge of the earth. He's given us this courtroom setting. Repay to the proud what they deserve. And this is the idea of the vengeance that he's pleading for. Repay what they deserve. These proud people, these arrogant people that are boasting against you, that are committing acts of evil. Repay them for this. Give them what they have earned. 
Now, before we get too into this song, because, man, we're all thinking of someone right now, or all thinking of one group right now where we're like, yeah, God, go get them. I think we need to be very careful on this. Because how how many times, how often in our life have we been the proud? Have we been the arrogant? How many times in your life have you inflicted injury on someone else? Would you rather have a loving God or a vengeful God? It really depends on who's on trial. I want to say one more thing about this vengeance, though, and this judge. Vengeance doesn't, it's, it's not a mutually exclusive question. It's not an either or. It's a both and. This vengeance comes from his love. His vengeance comes from his love. His desire for justice and his true justice comes from his love. Because he has a creation that he absolutely loves. And it is because he loves his creation that he wants to see justice. If you were in front of a judge and that person who had taken your family and had tortured your family sat in front of a judge, and you laid out the arguments, and at the end of the arguments, the judge said, well, man, this has been a great time to express our feelings, and uh, I just love you guys so much. I'm so glad we could get together and have this little courtroom session. And uh, I just love you guys. Go ahead and go home now. Would that actually be love? No. That would be be flippant talk. It would be meaningless. It would would be using this term of love, but it would be a meaningless love. True love cares about others. And it is because of this love God has that he has a, 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 a desire for justice. A God that did not love wouldn't care what happened in this world. A God that didn't love you wouldn't care about justice at all. And so the question, would you rather have a vengeful God or a loving God, is a misnomer. It's not a real question because it frames it as as an either or, but it's really a both and. God is both vengeful and loving, and he is vengeful, he cares about justice because of his love. So here's this judge. God is the judge who who is a judge full of love, and it is because of his love that he cares about justice. So, because he cares about justice, he wants, he will give the proud what they deserve. Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? So now we're getting into what the wicked are doing, right? So first off, the wicked are exalting. This term exalting means to be jubilant or to celebrate. So the wicked are celebrating, they're gloating in their wicked. This is what the psalmist is observing, that these wicked people that he watches are gloating in their wickedness. They're jubilant in it. And so now he's asking the question, okay, God, you are the judge of the earth, you are a loving God, and you are a just God because of your love. Therefore, how long is this going to go on? How long are you going to watch as these wicked people celebrate their wickedness? Then he's going to go on to describe it. They pour out their arrogant words. This term pour out literally means like water gushing out of the side of a mountain. So if you can picture their arrogant words being poured out the side of a mountain, rushing out, 
It's kind of like Grand Falls during monsoon season, right? There's a group that went up to Grand Falls, and that's gushing out, right? That's the arrogance words right now. They're gushing out. They're, they're celebrating in such a way that, they're, that the arrogance is gushing out of their mouth. And the, all the evildoers boast. This term boast means to show off. So you get this picture now. The arrogant, the, or the wicked, the evildoers, they're bragging about it in such a way that it's boasting out of their, or gushing out of their mouth, and they're boasting about it. They're showing it off. Hey, look at this wickedness that we are committing. And then he describes what it is. They crush your people, O Lord. This term crush means to shatter under their feet. So they're crushing your people, O Lord. And afflict your heritage. Afflict means to oppress or to make low. Let's think about the setting once more. We've talked about it a little bit in song or in book four. It's being organized or edited during the time of exile. So the Jews were conquered by the Babylonians, and when they were conquered, they were taken back to Babylon to be used as slaves. And so now these Jews are, are, are enslaved, and this is what's happening to them in their enslavement. They're being crushed. They're being made low. They're being oppressed. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. So the wicked people aren't just oppressing all the people, but in particular, they're going after the most weak in the society. They're going after those who don't have any defenses up. I think it's important for us, for us to ask the question, who are the most vulnerable in our culture today? Those are the people that the wicked go after. The most vulnerable. Because they're low-hanging fruit. And they say, so this is their boast now. What they've been boasting about, what they've been pouring forth, they've been doing these acts of wickedness, and this is what they say in their boastfulness. The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. This term perceive means to take note. So basically what they're saying is that God, he, he either sees and he doesn't care, or he doesn't see at all. That God created this world, He set everything in motion, and then He checked out. And because of this, we don't have to worry about justice. We can get away with whatever we want, and we can justify it any way we want. Because there is no God. This is why it's so important for us to to have a firm uh, apologetic about morality. Because without God, morality is subjective. And morality is constantly changing. You can twist anything if there is no moral authority. And that's what these people are saying. There is no God, there is no moral authority. Therefore, we can get away with killing the most vulnerable in our society. That's what's happening. That's the picture. So then he addresses the wicked. And he says, understand, O dullest of people. This term understand means to take note. And so what's interesting is he's, he's 
taking what they say about God, that God's not taking note, and he's saying, now it's your turn. You wicked people, it's your turn to take note. Because you don't believe God is actually taking note. But you need to stop, and you need to take note of what is actually happening. The term, oh, dullest, or old dullest, it literally means stupid. Some of you in your translations actually has stupid in there. So he's saying, take note, you stupid people. Fools, when will you be wise? A fool is someone that may have knowledge, but doesn't apply that knowledge. And so what he's saying is, he's addressing two groups of people here. The stupid people that that have empty heads, that don't even have the knowledge, they're not taking time to take note of whether or not there is a God. So he's saying, stop and take note, you foolish, you stupid person. Gain this knowledge. And for those of you who have the knowledge but aren't actually applying it to your life, take time out and start applying it to your wives. To, to live with wisdom means to have skillful living, and it means to take the knowledge that you have and begin to apply it. Apply this knowledge. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to actually apply that to your life. So he's saying, take note, stop. Gain the knowledge, and if you have the knowledge, apply the knowledge. And then he uses just a simple logical argument. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? It's a simple logical argument. It's God created the eye, God created the ear, Obviously, he values them. He created them for a purpose, to observe, to gain information. And you don't think God is watching? You don't think God is listening? He created the eye. He created the ear. Of course he's listening. Of course he's watching. Of course he's observing what you are doing, you wicked person. Then he continues, He who disciplines the nation, does he not rebuke? This term discipline means punish in order to improve something. God's discipline is never punitive. It's always corrective. So God is disciplining the nations to correct them, to steer them in a correct course. But this term rebuke also means penalty for a crime. So the question here is, because God is watching a nation and he's trying to correct them and they continue to rebel against him, do you not realize that he will eventually punish them? for their crime. That's the point that he's driving here. And then he switches it over, not just to a nation, but to individuals. He who teaches man knowledge. So do you not realize that God is out there teaching you? The stupid and the fool do not have to stay stupid. They don't have to stay foolish. God will teach you. His discipline is there to correct you. Now, I think it is important that we take just one second out and and make a distinction, because this is an Israelite writing at a time where God had a covenant with the Israelites. And the covenant is, if you do these things, I'm going to bless you. If you remain faithful to me, and if you follow my law, I'm going to bless you. However, if You do not remain faithful to me, and you turn towards other gods, and you don't follow my law, 
you will be cursed. And I will bring in another nation to conquer you. Well, throughout the history of Israel, they they had their ups and their downs, and they finally came to a point where God said, enough is enough. You have broken my covenant so many times that I'm rising up Babylon, and they're going to come in, and they're going to take you over. Babylon took over Israel because they broke the covenant that they made with God. The United States of America has no such covenant. So we need to rethink this disciplining of nations a little bit. I think it might be a good conversation for you to have on your ride home. How does God discipline a nation? How does God discipline an individual? And how do you know the difference between natural consequences and discipline? Like, when do you know this is just a natural consequence? Let's say I go home and I'm speeding and I'm drunk and I run into a tree. There's going to be some natural consequences to that. I've heard some people that have gone through a similar situation. They say, well, God was just correcting me. And I want to say, I think God does discipline you. But that wasn't God's discipline. That was a natural consequence of you doing something that was stupid. So there are natural consequences to our sin. But there's also discipline. It's important for us to be able to, to think through the difference there. He continues, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. So the idea here is that the wicked continually scheme. The wicked continually say, God isn't going to watch. God doesn't hear. I can get away with whatever I want. I can twist reality however I want. But God will outlast that. In fact, God will outlast that idea so much that to God it seems is just a breath. My youngest is really into holding his breath right now and having me time him. He's really excited when he can get to 13 seconds. I mean, to him, 13 seconds holding his breath seems like forever. But do me a favor, everybody, right now. Take in a big breath. Just raise a three breath. And out. It wasn't very long at all, was it? That breath is gone. That's what our ideas are like compared to the greatness of God. You think you've got some really clever idea. God has seen it. God has seen it and you walk. Whatever wickedness our culture is going up against right now. God has seen it. It's not me. And God will outlast it. He switches gears here. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. So we see that God does rebuke nations. God does come in and deliver justice. But God also disciplines us. These disciplines are warnings. It's like he's screaming for us to turn around before we jump off the cliff. Part of that discipline is he teaches us out of his law. The law here is a reference not just to Levitical law, but to all of the Bible, to all of Scripture that is inspired. Blessed is the one who, who studies it 
learn from it. He submits his life to it. And why are we blessed? Well, the next line, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. It's important to note here that, that this idea of uh, rest from days of trouble doesn't mean that you won't have trouble. The psalmist is, is acknowledging that there will be trouble. The psalmist is acknowledging that there are wicked, and these wicked people will come and give us trouble. It's not that you will live a life that is totally free from trouble. No, there will be trouble, but in the midst of that trouble, you can have rest. You can have rest in trouble because you are grounded and rooted in the Creator who sees that trouble as but a breath. It is so easy for us to get caught up and think that this new, latest thing is the biggest thing and it's going to totally alter humanity. It's like, you know, a, a movie intro where it's like, Things will never be the same. And the media pump it up, and then, and there are certain people that benefit from making us believe that it, it, it's, the game has changed. But when we're rooted and grounded in a God who sees what, what we think is this huge thing as but a breath, we can find rest. Because we know this isn't new to God. To give him rest until a pit is dug for the wicked. And that's just a reference. The pit is dug. This means that the, the wicked will die. The wicked will die. And now, for the Lord will not forsake his people. So why are we blessed? Well, he's, he's blessed us to give us rest. And we're also blessed because the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Even when it feels like God isn't around. I think about the exile, the Jew that was living in exile, who felt like God must have abandoned us. God, where are you? And even think about the Jew, the second temple Jew. So after the exile, they come back to Israel. They rebuild. They build a second temple. Then the Greeks come, and the Greeks rule over. Eventually the Romans come, and the Romans rule over. And almost any time you watch a show about the time of Jesus, what do you hear the Jews saying? Oh God, when will you come rescue us from the Romans? God, have you abandoned us? I also like to watch Fiddler on the Roof, and you see that over and over again, right? God, when will you come? And he's saying, look, God has not forsaken us. God has not abandoned his people. God, even when it feels like it, God hasn't. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. So ultimate justice can only be given by God, is the point that he's driving here. Ultimate justice can only be given by God. And so we... we Go back to our courtroom study. Now let's say that this was a human judge. And we go through the trial, and the defendant throughout the trial admits that he kidnapped your family, that he tortured every single one of them. 
And then in the end, he killed them and he enjoyed doing it. And throughout the trial, he laughs and he mocks at you. And this human judge at the end says, okay, we're going to throw the book at you. You have displayed that you are an evil, wicked person. You're done. Is true justice being delivered at that point? I would say no. How many family members did he kill? Let's, let's say he took my family. Five, five people he tortured and he killed and he enjoyed doing it. Can I kill him five times? I can't. We are limited in our capacity for true justice here. Even if we're striving for true justice, we are limited in our capacity. The only one that can hand out, that can deliver true justice is God. And so in the end, even if we strive for justice, which we should, even if we strive for justice, in the end, we have to trust God who is both loving and just with true justice. So then he finishes this psalm with two rhetorical questions. So he starts one and he answers it, and then in verse 20 he'll give us another one. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? So in a fallen, basically what he's saying is in a fallen, crooked, perverse world, in a world where we see injustice all around and unrighteousness all around, where is my hope? That's what he's asking. Where can I find hope? In whom can I hope? And then he gives us the answer. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. And basically what he's saying here is if, if he didn't trust in God, if he didn't believe in God, if he didn't realize that God's bigger than our breath and has seen this before and will outlast us, if he, if God, if he didn't trust God in his life, then he would have given up. He would have stopped protesting. He would have stopped striving for justice. He would have become apathetic. Because he would have stopped believing in true justice. And I think we see this. In a culture that turns more and more away from God, we see more and more people that are apathetic when it comes to justice. Who just don't care because it just seems so overwhelming. When you think about all the evils of the world, without God, why even why not just give and become a part of the problem? But because he believes in God, he hasn't given up. He hasn't lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart were many, your consolations cheer my soul. So in trying time, he reminds himself of who God is. He reminds himself that God is both a God of love and a God of justice. That God cares deeply about justice. And that God loves him. And then he goes back through and he reminds himself. Last week we talked about how important it is to remind ourselves of God's redemptive work. 
If we're not constantly reminding ourselves of God's redemptive work, we'll end up in the land of silence. We'll end up being apathetic. So it's so important for us to go back through and, and go back through Scripture and just continually remind ourselves of what God has done, but then look into our own life and say, look what God has done in my life. And that's why it's so important to gather together as, as fellow Christians and look and hear the other stories of what God has done in each other's life. I love telling the story of my dad, which for 13 years of my life, and, and before I was even alive, was addicted to drugs, was messed up. Later on in life, he told me, Aaron, I never wanted to be addicted. And I tried everything to stop. I went to AA. But I was always addicted until the day I gave my life to Christ. And it was on that day that God freed me from addiction. And when we share those stories, we see the power of God working to redeem us. So we need to remind ourselves, think over and over again of God's redemptive acts in our lives and in the world. He gives us the second rhetorical question. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? So the first question, or the first part of this question is, can wicked rulers be allied with you? And it's basically, can God be on the side of the wicked? Can God choose the wicked? Now think about this for a second, because the Babylonians were wicked. The Babylonians were incredibly wicked. Along with the Assyrians who conquered northern Israel. Incredibly wicked. And the question is, God, are you on those wicked people's side? And the answer is no, but God can use wicked people to achieve his goals. God is not on the side of the wicked. But God doesn't waste any event in human history. And so when wicked people do wicked things, God can use that to redeem others. God doesn't waste anything. And so he used the Babylonians' wickedness to discipline Israel so that they would be driven back to him. And what do they do? They recognize that they broke the covenant, that they haven't been pursuing God, and they turn back to God. God is not for the wicked, but he can use the wicked. The next question here is those who frame injustice by statute. That's the second part of the question. And so we see part of how those wicked rulers operate. And we might use the, the term, they frame injustice by statute. Statute is a lot here. So you would, you would, I would frame this question as systemic injustice. Now I don't always, in our culture, it's kind of tough to use that term. Because it's so closely related to systemic racism. And that's a hot button issue. It's a hot button issue because there are some people that misuse it. They start going out on this hunt to find systemic racism in everything. And what does that do? One is, it makes some people get on the defensive and you're like, whoa, I'm not racist. And you start seeing them try to poke holes in everything and you start seeing how their, how their theory absolutely falls apart and then you just want to throw the whole thing out. Secondly, is it, it lessens the term. 
You know, when we overuse a word and we apply it wrongly, it lessens the power of that word. So take, for instance, awesome. How many of you have already used the term awesome once today? Yeah, I figured. I know I have. I've got three boys. I'm throwing around awesome like nothing. But that's kind of what it's become, right? Nothing. I mean, there was a time when awesome meant something. You're like, it meant that you were full of awe, that whatever it is you were watching inspired you and made you like drop your jaw and just sit back like, whoa. But now we start throwing around this word awesome, and pretty soon it just means, oh, cool. I mean, I kind of shrugged my shoulders like, wow, you did something awesome there. You see how it's lost its meaning? That's part of what's happened with systemic racism and systemic injustice. Is it's gotten thrown around so much that it's kind of lost its meaning, it's kind of lost its power. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Dr. Tony Evans gives a great example of systemic racism. And I we can all agree that racism is an injustice. It is an evil. The Bible makes it very clear. So in a sermon that he gave, he talked about the, the golf course that was across the street from his church. And there was at one time a law that blacks could not join that golf course. I think we and that country club. I think we would all agree that's evil. That's an evil systemic. Because it's in the system. It's a statute. It's a law. It's evil. We can all agree that. Well, eventually, they found that law to be unconstitutional. And so they did away with that law. So what that golf course did, that, that country club did, was they made it so that in order to join the club, in order to golf there, you had to be a member. And in order to be a member, you had to have two-thirds majority vote for you. So you had to apply for membership. You had to have a vote on you, and you had to have at least two-thirds majority vote yes. Now, let's pretend that there was a good white guy. A, a white guy that was not racist, and he had a best friend, and his best friend was black. And he said, man, I would love to go golfing with you. Come to my country club, and we'll go golfing together. But first, we have to put you to a vote. So they go, and they put him to a vote, and he loses by two-thirds. Two-thirds of the people say, no, nah, we don't want black people here. Now, the one-third can say, well, I'm not racist. No, you're not racist, but do you see how you've let a systemic racist policy carry over and that you are still a part of a systemic problem? It is important for us. We should care about the systemic injustices that carry over. It is far too easy for us to see one group of people talk about systemic racism and systemic injustice and get mad and just throw the whole thing out because we disagree with them. I think we need to slow down. And when we see an injustice, ask the question, is this an individual injustice? Is this a systemic problem? Am I a part of that systemic? Even if I'm not racist? Even if I'm not the one partaking in the injustice? Because there is more systemic injustice than just racism. There's all kinds of systemic injustice. Because there are evil people that want power, and when they get power, they begin to write into law 
systemic injustice. So we need to be aware of it. Now that doesn't mean that we call everything systemic injustice, but it does mean that we take what is really systemic and call it that and use the word in a proper term so that it does not lose its value. So can the wicked rulers be allied with you? Can God be a part of the wicked rulers? And then he describes them, those who frame injustice by statute, those who create systemic injustices. The answer is clearly no. God is against systemic injustice. God is against laws that are unjust. And then he describes again how they do it. They band together against the life of the righteous. There are wicked people that band together to hold the righteous people back. And it's not always happening in this country. Sometimes it happens here. I think we can use North Korea as a great example of this. There are unjust people that have banded together to hold the righteous people back and condemn the innocent to death. So what they're doing is they're using the systemic laws, the statutes, to get rid of their to get rid of anyone that would challenge them. But, so this word contrasts, those evil people that are grabbing for power, that want to use power to, to keep the righteous down, but the Lord has become my stronghold. This term, stronghold, literally means a crag. So think of this huge cliff. We were in Sedona this last uh, week. We went down there and uh, we were walking around Bell, Bell Tower. Are you, are you familiar with Bell Tower? It's a sheer cliff, right? Like I'm, I mean, I could be wrong on that. It's a sheer cliff. Well, we were walking around it and there's a tourist from, I don't know, there's another country and we had a good laugh because she came up to us. She was like, so does the trail lead all the way up there? <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to be the one to disappoint, so I just said, oh, we took this trail over there, so we just walked that trail. But as we're walking back to our car, we're looking at this cliff, the sheer cliff, and we're like, how does she think that trail's going to work? I mean, <laughs> does she think it's like, I don't know, is there a ladder that's going to get you up there? No, the, the trail does not lead up the sheer cliff. That's what this is. That's what the, the description here is. A sheer cliff. So the Lord has become the sheer cliff that no one can get to. No one can reach this person because of that sheer cliff. And my God, the rock of my refuge. And this refuge is a place of safety. So we see that, that, that because he believes so thoroughly in God's justice, that he is trusting in God's justice. Now this doesn't mean that there won't be injustice in this world. This doesn't mean that you might die, or might not die. That's not what it means. You know, I think of Paul and Peter who knew this psalm. Who would sing this song over and, psalm over and over again to themselves to give them comfort while they were in prison. As they were on their way to death. It's not that you will be delivered and have a, a pain-free life. But it is that in the end you can trust God with it. He will bring back on them their iniquity. So he finishes up with how God is going to repay them. He will bring back, this is an idea of a boomerang. So, you know, if you toss the boomerang and you're good, I've never been able to get the boomerang to come back to me. But if you're good enough, you can bring that boomerang back to you. 
And that's what's going to happen, is that these people that are living with systemic injustices, eventually this will get turned around on them. Eventually, they will fall by the same sword they were carrying. And we see this with the woke mob. It won't be long until the woke mob and the cancel culture comes after the very person that was leading it. So that's on one side. On the other side, we see this happening too. Those, those people that want to hold on to certain traditions just because it leaves them in power, it'll come back to them as a boomerang. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. In the end, God brings true justice. So what are some theological implications from this psalm? One is that God cares about justice. Because he is a loving God, he cares about justice. Because he is a loving God, he is also a vengeful God. We need to hold on to that. Number two is God is active in justice. God is active. Sometimes we get this idea as Christians that God will be active in the future, that we can judge, that we can trust God's justice in the future. But God is active now. God is active in our lives now. And third is that God will deliver final justice. God will deliver final justice. And we can trust that God's final justice will be true justice, not my emotion-driven justice. So what are some personal applications that we can gather? One is because God cares about justice, we should too. Sometimes it's easy for us to become apathetic and think, well, God will settle that out later on. We should care about justice. And in particular, in our country, because we have power as people, because we live in a democracy, because our vote counts, we should care. And we should care about the politicians that we vote for. Number two is, we can trust God with ultimate justice. We should care about justice, and we should we can trust God with ultimate justice. This means that we don't need to do the justice work ourselves. When we don't trust God with justice, we then think that we have to be the one. And our whole life can get caught up in enforcing justice. But the problem is, as we already stated, it's human justice. And it's not real justice. We can trust God with ultimate justice. And that leads us to our third point. Our job is to stand in God's truth and trust His word. Our job is to stand in God's truth. To hold tight to Scripture. To let people know what God's word says. Because without God's word and His moral authority, justice will be twisted Justice will be trampled on, and there will never be justice in a land where there is no moral authority. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can trust your word, that you are a God who loves, and because you love, you are a God of justice. That when you see unjust action, when you see systemic injustice, when you see the wicked bragging about how you don't see, you do see. 
And God, instead of us having an angry attitude about the injustice we see, help us to have a heart that aches. A heart that aches because we see your creation being trampled. And we know the final outcome for some is eternal. So help us to stand with your truth, to share your truth so that others may turn toward you. In your name we pray. Amen.